Well, it's no secret what God can do, but I think that song's been a secret for far too long, don't you? I, uh, I know that song, sort of, <laughs> not really. You know, if you stop to think about our hymn book and how many songs in our hymn book and how, really how few of them sometimes that we actually sing and that we actually know, uh, it, really is a, it really is a shame. And I think we're creatures of habit and we uh, kind of get settled into, uh, you know, our routine. And I appreciate uh, Brother Mike and him introducing a new song to us. But I don't know if you caught that or not, but he bailed after that first verse. He's like, I'm out of here. <laughs> this did not go the way that I'd intended. How many of you have never sung that song before? Would you raise your hand? Whoa. Brother Mike, where are you at? Let's do it. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, he's, he, we'll catch him before he leaves. But uh, how many of you never heard that song before, ever? Okay, that's, that's, most, that's a, man, a high percentage of you. I've heard it, but uh, not too many times. So anyways, let's take our Bibles. Go to Proverbs chapter number six tonight. Proverbs chapter number six. And uh, tonight's message is going to be... Um, uh, a, a little different, I think, um, than you know what it what would be normal. It's it's uh, you know we're walking our way through the book of Proverbs, and uh, and there's just some really really practical things here um, that that I believe will will be a help to those that have an open heart and a and an open mind, uh, and uh, and 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 so again we just. Uh, this may be considered a little bit more teaching than it would be preaching, but uh, this is where we're at here in this particular uh, text. And so I want us to look in verse number one. We're going to go down through verse number 11. And the title of the message tonight is Pitfalls to Poverty. Pitfalls to Poverty. The Bible says in verse number one of Proverbs chapter six, my son, if thou be surety for thy friend, if thou hast stricken thy hand with a stranger, thou art snared with the words of thy mouth. Thou art taken with the words of thy mouth. Do this now, my son, and deliver thyself. When thou art come into the hand of thy friend, go, humble thyself, and make sure thy friend. Give not sleep to thine eyes, nor slumber to thine eyelids. Deliver thyself as a roe from the hand of the hunter, and as a bird from the hand of the fowler. Verses 1 through 5 is the first fit, fit, uh, pitfall to poverty. Then he transitions in verse number 6, and we see the second. Go to the ant, thou sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise, which having no guide, overseer, or ruler, provideth her meat in the summer, and gathereth her food in the harvest. How long wilt thou sleep, O sluggard? When wilt thou arise out of thy sleep? Yet a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep, so shall thy poverty come as one that traveleth, and thy want as an armed man. Father, we pray that you'd help us tonight as we teach through this particular portion of Proverbs chapter number six. Uh, Lord, I, um, I find that, Lord, what you give us in the Bible really is, is not all that challenging or difficult for us to comprehend. Sometimes implementation of these things, or sometimes, Lord, we can just, we can just excuse, excuse away certain things in our lives and believe that we'll be the exception to the rule. And the Lord would discover as we walk through this text that a lot of good people that have fallen into these various pitfalls that are found here. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to avoid these things. The goal in life, Lord, is, is certainly not wealth and and uh, Lord, uh, being rich and, and increased with goods. Uh, but Lord, neither is the goal in life to be as poor as we possibly can be. And so help us, help us to strike the balance in all of these things. Bless us tonight, we pray, as we uh, tackle this text, as we dive into your word. In Jesus' name, amen. 
As I said a moment ago in my prayer, the goal in this life should never be to simply accumulate wealth, to try to become as rich as you possibly can be. I want want you to know this. There have been many people who have been very wealthy in this life. They've accumulated a whole lot of this world's goods and possessions and money, and uh, and yet they have and, and they've lived great lives, and their name has been very well known. And yet they have discovered uh, they have discovered very little purpose and satisfaction. On the other hand, there have been people uh, who have not accumulated great wealth. Uh, who have sort of lived paycheck to paycheck and just kind of scratch, uh, scratch an existence through in this life, and yet they have discovered great purpose and great fulfillment and great satisfaction in life apart from these things. One of the greatest things that anybody could ever do if you're given the opportunity is to make a mission trip and to visit a mission field that we would, would be considered what we would say would be a third world country. That means an underdeveloped country. Years ago, I was in the Philippines, and, and uh, we were making some visits on an afternoon, and we happened into a, into a home. And when I say home, you in your mind have an idea of what a home is, but this was not anything like you and I could possibly imagine. It was one room, one room, that was it. And there was, a, there was a mom in the corner of the room, and she was working on some things, and there was a bed sheet that was hung from one end of the ceiling to the other end of the ceiling in the room, and, uh, and we were given to understand that that was the baby's crib. There was a little baby in that room. Everyone else in that house slept on the floor. I remember going to Africa with our teenagers. I, I don't remember, maybe the year 2016, something along those lines, and we were in Kenya, and one of the things that the Kenyans love to do that, uh, that as, we, as we visit there is they love to invite us into their homes and, and to share a meal with us and to be a blessing to us. And I got to tell you, it is so humbling to walk into the, those homes and see how little space they have and what little they have. And yet the joy of the Lord is all about them. So understand this, that wealth, wealth does not equate to happiness, it does not equate to fulfillment, it does not equate to success in any way, shape, or form. We consider really the author of this text, and he experienced, he experienced the, the first scenario in which he had all of the money, he had all of the possessions, and yet it provided very little in the way of fulfillment for him. We learn in Ecclesiastes chapter number two that Solomon, as we walk through this text together, he says he enjoyed pleasure in verse number one. He enjoyed laughter in verse number two. He, had, he enjoyed wine in verse number three. In verse number four of Ecclesiastes two, he had houses and vineyards. And in verse number five, he had gardens and orchards. In verse number six, he said, man, I have reservoirs to water my gardens and my trees. In verse number seven, he says, I have servants and I have cattle. In verse number eight, he said, I have silver and gold. Also in verse number eight, he says, I have peculiar treasures. I have singers and musical instruments. Solomon writes that he was greater than anyone who had ever inhabited his city or his region, according to verse number nine, and that he was not deprived of anything his heart desired at all in any way, shape, or form, according to verse number 10. And what was the result? What was the result of all of this bounty, of all of these riches, of all of this pleasure and wealth? He tells us in verse number 11. He said, then I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought and on the labor that I had labored to do and behold, so here's his assessment. Here's his, uh, here's his, um, his, his, his overarching statement of everything that he had enjoyed and that he had accumulated in life. He said, and behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit and there was no 
profit under the sun. That word vanity means emptiness. Emptiness. Frustration. Vexation of spirit. That's frustration. These things should be making me happier. They, 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 the, I mean, I've got musical instruments and people to play them and I have singers and I have all of this wealth and gardens and orchards and, and I have, have pools of water to, uh, to, to, to water the gardens and orchards that I have and I have silver and gold and peculiar treasures. All of these things should be making me happier than I am. And yet his assessment is it was all empty. Vexation of spirit. I believe There are some things much greater than wealth and financial prosperity in this life. I would identify these things as things such as physical health is better than financial health. Some of you, you don't have two nickels to rub together. And that's unfortunate to a certain extent. Maybe God's blessed you with a very, very healthy body. And you're able to get up and do what you want to do and go where you want to go. And you're not dealing with maybe a chronic pain or some type of arthritis or fibromyalgia or some other uh, issue that, uh, that, that, that you struggle with, you know, scoliosis in the back or whatever the case might be. God has given you a clean bill of health. And while you look at your bank account and you say, that looks pretty pitiful and pretty pathetic, God has blessed you in other ways that I have to tell you are more valuable than money. Because listen, you can have all the money in the world and you can't cure arthritis. You have all the money in the world and you can't cure cancer. You can't cure fibromyalgia and some of these different things that people contend with. And so I would say that physical health is greater, is a greater, uh, is a greater blessing than financial health. How about peace and contentment? Can you put a price tag on that? Is that something you could buy? Is that something that you can purchase to be able to pillow your head at night and, and, and to have peace and contentment that I've done the will of God, that I'm where I should be, that I'm following God, and that no matter whatever my trials and my struggles are, God's got it under control. I have to tell you that that peace and contentment is a greater level of blessing than financial prosperity. How about a healthy marriage and a healthy home? Again, some, 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 of you, some of you don't have hardly anything. Boy, you have a great marriage. Your wife loves you. She's faithful to you. And she would never, never do anything to hurt you. And she serves you and ministers to you. You have a husband who goes to work every day and he works hard. And he's an honorable man. He's a man of character and integrity. And I just have to tell you, that's a lot better than a healthy bank account. How about... How about obedience to God's word and his will? Living your life and knowing what this Bible teaches and living your life in obedience to what this Bible teaches. I would tell you that that, my friend, that is of greater value than financial wealth and financial prosperity. In other words, I believe these, these things that we've mentioned tonight are of more value than a hefty bank account or portfolio. And therefore tonight, listen, I might be, I might be looking and preaching to a group of people far more wealthy, far more prosperous than those who live and work in the Silicon Valley. I might be preaching to a group of people far wealthier than those who are in the nation's capitals politically, like Washington, D.C., or financially, like New York City. Why? Because, because there's, listen, there's a wealth in, in these things that money can never buy, that money can never afford. Well, all I have stated thus far is undoubtedly true. It is also true that we must have money and any other uh, and, 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 and things along those lines to survive in this world. Much of life is about discovering balance, isn't it? 
This is certainly true in this area as well. You know, the Bible has much to say about money and finances. Did you know that of the 39 parables that Christ gave, 11 had to deal with finances? That Jesus spoke more about finances than any other topic during his earthly ministry. I believe Solomon identifies two very specific pitfalls that, listen, if they're not avoided, they will surely bring about poverty in the first 11 verses of Proverbs 6. There's two of them here that I want you to see. While the goal in life isn't financial prosperity, there isn't something spiritual about financial poverty either. In other words, we're not, we're not sitting here saying, well, that all, I, all I can think about is getting more money, getting more money, getting more money. But on the flip side, you're not more spiritual than somebody else because you're, you don't have two nickels to rub together and you can't get out of your own way financially. There's balance. We're trying to strike and discover the balance that is found here in this life. So how can you bring financial poverty upon yourself? You do these two things that are found here in this text, and you'll discover, you'll discover a life of financial poverty. Number one, number one, pitfall to poverty is to become surety. To become surety, verses one through five. Now, I must tell you that this is not necessarily the way that we would reference this, and so I feel a need to sort of explain exactly what it is that Solomon is writing about here. Many of you, you already know where he's going, but just, just hang on for just a minute so that I can explain others who are saying, I don't even know what that means, exactly what this is. In the financial world, people will pl- apply for loans in order to buy things that they might want or they might need. Now, ideally, we pay cash for what we are buying for, about what we are buying. That would, be, that would be the best way to live. And I would strongly encourage the members of the Cleveland Baptist Church to, uh, to spend what you're going to buy, to spend cash for those things. Make sure that you can afford to pay for those things. But there are times, there are times in which that might not be possible. We're talking about, again, major, major expenditures, things like a car or a house, and I would even be very, very careful about a car note and, 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 and that sort of thing. And it would be wise, it would be wise, I must say this, it'd be wise for folks to have some type of an emergency fund in place as emergencies do happen, don't they? They certainly do. We, uh, I don't know, probably close to the beginning of this year, our dishwasher went out. And uh, boy, that, in a lot of homes, that's an emergency, um, a real emergency, and I just, I'm too cheap to buy a new one. And so I've been washing dishes by hand. M- myself, I've been doing it. I've been washing dishes by hand for several months. And I don't mind doing it. It's, I'd, I'd rather do that than spend six, seven, eight hundred dollars on a dish. Now, I know my time is coming. We're going to get one eventually. But I'm sort of happy just washing the dishes. I put my earbuds in. I listen to a podcast and away I go, you know. Put an apron on. No, I don't really put an apron on. I'm just, I'm just kidding about that. But you know, that, that, that's, that's sort of an emergency in some respects, right? How about your washing machine goes? Your dryer goes? Some major appliance in the house goes? And ideally, ideally, you have, a, you have an emergency fund sitting there for that type of need in which, you know, what, maybe it's 1000 2000 $3,000. Something goes wrong. You can replace whatever that thing is, and you can, uh, you, you can just, you know, build that money back up over time. That, that's, that's the way to live. But sometimes people go to apply for a loan because they they do not have the financial means. They they don't have the emergency fund in place. And as a result, as a result, the, the the bank officer, the loan officer, he begins to do a little digging. And um and and he digs sort of deep and he begins to discover this guy, we can't give him a loan. He's he's not good for this. 
There, there's, there's a reason why he's coming to us and he's asking us for money to buy a big screen television or, you know, I mean, honestly, people that do these kinds of things, they, they take loans out to buy silly things like that. And I know all the men are sitting here saying, wait a minute, he called a big screen TV silly, but you, you get the idea, right? And so they, they apply for a loan and, and the, bank, the bank looks at their and says, they're not good for this. If we give them a loan, they're never gonna pay it back and we're gonna be stuck. But you know, the, the bank never wants to lose a customer. Some of you are in sales, you know how this works, right? And that guy's ready to walk out the door and I mean, you're ready to do anything to get them to stay in the door and so you start wheeling and doing I remember several years ago, <laughs> I can't be the only guy in this room that's done this. We had a guy in our house to sell us windows. We weren't interested in windows. We wanted the gift card for the presentation that he was, he was gonna give us, right? I didn't want, in, I didn't want windows at all. I, I kid you not, the windows, the window cost started at $27,000 for new windows in our home. And I'm looking at him like, bro, I only brought you in here for the $100 gift card to Olive Garden, all right? I, 27, not, not even a chance, not even a chance. And by the end of the time that he left, by the end of the time he left, the windows, the whole thing was gonna be done for like three, five, thousand dollars, something like that. Three, three to five thousand dollars. He had whittled the cost away that much. And I'm still looking at him like, just give me the gift card and get out of my house, you know? But you get the idea, right? The, the bank is the, is the salesman and the customer is the guy that wants the loan. And he's sitting here and he's going, he's going, I don't want this guy to walk out the door because there's a lot of interest associated with this loan and this is how we make our money. And so here's, here's what he does. He comes back to the potential customer and he asks a question like this. Do you know someone who would co-sign for you? you by, by the groans that I just heard, you're, 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 you're with me now. You understand where this is going, right? Because this becomes surety. It's, it's sort of Bible language and, and some of it we're not exactly maybe certain of what's, what's being stated here. So this person then would need to look for someone in better financial shape than they are who would be willing to serve as a guarantor or a surety. What that means is if they can't pay, if they can't pay, then this person who's gonna sign with them is, is, is going to guarantee to be responsible to pay for it themselves. To which Dr. John Phillips writes this, you can ill afford the luxury of guaranteeing someone else's indebtedness. That's all of us, by the way. In other words, in other words, Solomon is saying that you are a very foolish person if you become surety for someone else. And so he shares, he shares with us two things. Number one, he says this, don't become surety. I mean, verses one and two, it's very, very plain. This is not the only time we'll find this in the book of Proverbs. In Proverbs 17 and verse number 18, the Bible says, a man void of understanding. In other words, he's, he's empty. He's incomplete when it comes to understanding. This type of man, he becometh surety in the presence of his friend. Proverbs 17, 18. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says, if you do something like this, you are void of understanding. You're, let, me, let me just make it 2022 for you. You're not very smart. Now, that's what he's saying. You're void of understanding. In Proverbs 22 and verse number 26, he says, be not thou one of them that strike hands or of them that are sureties for debts. So don't be, don't be one of those guys. Don't co-sign on someone, else, someone else's indebtedness. Now he warns against doing this in verse number one. He warns against doing this for a foreigner or a stranger, which is to be expected. 
I mean, if you're walking down the street today and some guy come running out of the bank, you've never seen him before in your life, and the guy says, listen, would you sign, would you co-sign for me? You'd be like, man, I've never seen you before. Buzz off, you know? Go talk to somebody you know. Go call somebody you know. None of us would do that. Well, that's to be expected, but Solomon takes it a step further, doesn't he? He says, don't even do it for a friend. A friend. He says, you're asking, you're asking for trouble to enter into this type of arrangement. See, here's, here's, here's what Solomon is teaching. He, he's teaching the decision to enter into this type of an agreement should be made. If you're going to do it, if you're going to do it, it should be made with the understanding that more than likely you will eventually be asked to contribute in some way to this debt. That's what he's saying. And that's why it's a pitfall to poverty. Because you're gonna find yourself stuck paying for something that you'll never use, that you'll never enjoy, that's not even yours. So that's not a very smart way to live. Now you may pay a small amount, or you may pay a significant amount, but you should not make this guarantee unless you are willing, unless you go into it saying, I'm gonna sign on this dotted line, and I know that I'm gonna pay at some point, and I'm okay with that. If that's your attitude, if that's your mindset, truly, that's your attitude and mindset, and you can afford to do it, then have at it. But understand this, that you need to understand that this, there's a reason, listen, the bank has been at this longer than you have been. And as they look at this person and their finances and the way that they live, the, the bank is sitting here saying, there's no way in the world that this guy is going to fulfill the obligation to pay all this debt back. Therefore, we want to get somebody else on the line who will agree to pick up where this person leaves off. And while Solomon doesn't explicitly tell us not to do it, we understand he says, do not become surety for a friend or a foreigner. But let me ask you this question. What about for a family member? What about for a family member? What, what, do, you, what do you suppose the, the advice would be as it relates to this? Well, I must tell you that if you just simply take the principles and, and the truths that are found in this text and you apply them across the board, I still think you probably will come to the same conclusion. Here, here's, here's the concern. Here's the concern. If you, if you do this and it doesn't work out and the bank is assuming this is not going to work out, the fear is, the fear is that this relationship is going to be fractured. You know, everything's hunky-dory right now. Everything's fine and good. And, and uh, man, I'm, I'm going to sign on this stuff because I'm your friend, because I'm your cousin, because I'm your nephew, I'm your uncle, whatever the case might be. I'm willing to do this now. We're buddies. But what happens when he defaults on that loan and you're stuck paying a couple hundred dollars a month on something that isn't yours, something that will never be yours? something that maybe has already been destroyed, has already depreciated in value. Are, are we going to be real close buddies and friends at that point in time? And then what you've lost is you've lost a friendship. Not just money out of your bank account, but you've lost a friendship. Perhaps you've, 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 you've strained a, a family relationship that maybe will never, will never be fully repaired. I would say this, if a family member comes to you for help, you might be better off just to simply buy whatever it is that they're asking for and not sign on the dotted line. I mean, if they really come to you and say, I need this, and, you're, and you have the ability to do it, instead of, instead of co-signing, because it's just gonna make aw- the relationship awkward between the two of you, why don't you say, you know, listen, if you really need that bad, I'll go out and I'll get it for you. And again, I, I'm speaking specifically probably in the relationship between parents and children and maybe children and parents above just about any other relationship. So he says, don't become shorty. But notice in verses three to five, he says, if you become surety, here's what you should do. So if you have become surety, here's what you should do, verses three to five. 
Solomon says, if you have done this, or you have agreed to do it, but maybe, maybe you've not yet signed on the dotted line. He says this, deliver yourself. You know what that means? That means get out of it as quickly as possible. That's what he's saying here. Verse number three, do this now, my son, and deliver thyself. When thou art come into the hand of thy friend, go, humble thyself, and make sure thy friend. It seemed that Solomon is saying, go to that person humbly, and explain to them why you do not feel comfortable making such a commitment or pledge. So you're going to have to humble yourself a little bit. You know, sort of the tail tucked between your legs. Listen, I know I agreed to do this a week or so ago, but since we've not signed on the dotted line, I was in church on Sunday night and my pastor <laughs> preached a message on this. And, and I realized that's a really bad idea. And so I, if I can help you in any other way, great. But I just don't feel like I'm in the right. I'm, I'm, we're giving you an out here, right? You say, well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to do that to my friend. Well, listen, you now have a scriptural reason why you should not do this. You just simply say something like this. I want, to be in, I want to be in obedience to God's word. And God's word says I shouldn't do this. And look what he says there. He says at the end of verse number three, and make sure thy friend. You know what he's saying there? He, he's saying by backing out of this arrangement, you're probably going to salvage the friendship and the relationship that you had in the first place. And by proceeding with this and ignoring the warning that I'm given, son, he says, by, by doing that, more than likely, more than likely, you'll end up paying some portion of this and the friendship, the relationship will be destroyed. So it's going to require you humbling yourself and you going and explaining your position to them biblically. Take them right to Proverbs 6 and just explain, listen, the word of God, the Holy Spirit of God instructs me not to get into this type of an arrangement and I love you, and you know that I love you, and I am willing to help you, and I'm willing to do whatever it takes, but I cannot violate a clear scriptural principle that is found in scripture. Chapter verse, you can give it to him. Chapter six, verses one through five. And by not taking this step, by not humbling yourself and explaining biblically why you can't do this, here's what he's saying. He's saying you will trap yourself just as a hunter would set a trap for a prey out in the field or in a tree somewhere, and that, that animal gets trapped, and you've seen it, haven't you? You've seen it on television. Maybe you've seen it in, in person. That animal is trapped in there. I mean, they are doing everything they can to get out of that trap, but it is useless. They are stuck. Solomon says you'll find yourself in the same place unless you humble yourself. And you go to that person and you say, listen, I cannot become surety for you. It is, a, it is against the clear teachings of God's word. Now, as we conclude this portion, let me say this. Personal credit or debt is something to avoid for those who are looking for financial independence. All right? So personal credit and personal debt. Boy, if at all possible, avoid that at all costs if you want to be financially independent. And let me just take it a step further. Becoming surety for someone else's credit or debt is not just a, 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 a pitfall away from financial independence, but it is, a, it is a sure pitfall to poverty itself. Don't do it, is what he's saying. Number two, the second pitfall to poverty, we've seen becoming surety. Number two is tolerating slothfulness. Tolerating slothfulness in our own lives. Verses six to 11, we discover this concept. You know, a sluggard is the actual Bible word that is used. And a sluggard is a person who is habitually lazy. They're idle and they're inactive. And Solomon warns that this too is a pitfall to poverty. Look what he says in verse number 11. So shall thy poverty come as one that traveleth, 
and thy want as an armed man. You know this, don't you, that laziness has become a blight and a cancer on our culture. Did you know that in the United States, in the United States, estimated welfare spending in 2022 will account for 22% of our federal budget? To put that in perspective, we will spend more on financial aid for our citizens, residents, legal and illegal, than we will on our entire national defense budget, which is $1.1 trillion. You, you heard that right. We will, spend more, we will spend more money on financial aid in this year than we will, than we will in our, on our armed forces and on taking care of our soldiers and making sure that they have the right equipment and the right training. And we'll, spend, we'll spend more money on financial aid in 2022 than we will, do, we will on our entire national defense budget. Now, I don't know any believer that doesn't believe we should spend some money on this type of thing. I, 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 don't know any, I don't know any believer that doesn't, doesn't look around and see certain people and says, listen, man, we have an obligation to take care of that person. I mean, that, that's, that's as, listen, that is as Christian as it gets. The Bible says pure religion and undefiled is this, and it's to look after the fatherless and the widow. I mean, we, 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 we get that, and we understand that. And, and, and we're, we, uh, again, you, you may disagree with me, but I'm saying I believe that we have an obligation to take care of certain people. And so I think some money should be spent on this. But you know as well as I do that there are many that are taking advantage of this system when they could be and they should be working and that hurts all of us, all of us. Solomon writes this advice to those who have tolerated slothfulness or laziness in their lives. He says, number one, consider the ant. Consider the ant. There's... Um, a popular fable that I think was an Aesop fable that was given. And there's an old version to it and there's a new version. I want to share both of them with you. Here's the old version. The ant works hard in the withering heat and rain all summer long, building his house and laying up supplies for the winter. The grasshopper thinks the ant is a fool and laughs and dances and plays the summer away. Come winter, the ant is warm and well-fed. The grasshopper has no food or shelter, so he dies out in the cold. The moral of this story, class, is to be responsible for yourself. Look ahead and make plans, emergency, fun, you know, that type of thing, and understand that a rainy day, a winter day is always coming. All right, that's the, that's the old version. And the moral is be responsible for yourself. Here's the new version. You ready for this? The modern version. See, see how far we've progressed. The ant works hard in the withering heat and the rain all summer long, building his house and laying up supplies for the winter. The grasshopper thinks the ant is a fool and laughs and dances and plays the summer away. Come winter, the shivering grasshopper calls a press conference and demands to know why the ant should be allowed to be warm and well-fed while he is cold and starving. CBS, NBC, PBS, CNN, and ABC show up to provide pictures of the shivering grasshopper next to a video of the ant in his comfortable home with a table filled with food. The insect kingdom is stunned by the sharp contrast. How can this be that in an ant community of such wealth, this poor grasshopper is allowed to suffer so? Kermit the Frog appears on Oprah with the grasshopper and everybody cries when they sing, it's not easy being green. A group called Occupy the Ant Hill stages a demonstration in front of the ant's house 
where the news stations filmed the Reverend Al Sharpton and a group of grasshoppers kneeling down to pray for the grasshopper while he, while he condemns the ants. He later appears on MSNBC to complain that rich ants do not care about those insects less fortunate. Former President Obama condemns the ants and blames Donald Trump, President Bush 43, President Bush 41, President Reagan, Christopher Columbus, and the Pope for the grasshopper's plight. Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer exclaim in an interview on the view that the ants have gotten rich off the backs of the poor grasshoppers and both call for an immediate tax hike on ants to make them pay their fair share. Finally, the EEOC drafts the Economic Equity and Anti-Grasshopper Act retroactive to the beginning of the summer. The ant is fined and having nothing left to pay his retroactive taxes, his home is confiscated by the government grasshopper czar and given to the grasshopper. The story ends as we see the grasshopper and his freeloading grasshopper friends finishing up the last bits of the ant's food while the government-owned ant house he is in, which, as you'll recall, just happens to be the ant's old home. The house crumbles around them because the grasshoppers do not maintain it. The ant has disappeared in the snow, never to be seen again. Now, we chuckle a little bit. Now, I'm trying not to be too political tonight, but you get the idea that these types of things are happening in our culture. And that there are people that are working hard and working diligently to provide for themselves and to provide for their families. And there are other people saying, hey, give me some of that. I want some of what you have. I I deserve some of that. It's only fair. It's only equitable. Solomon urges the lazy man to consider or to study the ant. And by doing so, he says, wisdom is gained. I don't know about you, but I was struck by this thought. How sad is it that a human being could be taught by such an insignificant creature as the ant? Now let that sink in for a moment. I mean, here we are. We are eternal beings with an eternal soul. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. We are created in the image of God. And yet, listen, the curse of sin and the sin nature brings us so low that God says, hey, come here. See that tiny, you can barely see it. You might have to get a magnifying eyes out to look at it. But see that ant, learn some lessons by watching the ant. Now think about that for a moment. How sad and how pathetic is it that you and I created in the image of God and God says, consider the ant. Well, what do we learn from the ant? Number one, she has no one. The ant has no one telling her what to do. That's what it says in verse number seven. It says she has no guide, no overseer, and no ruler. She's, she's got no guide to show her and to teach her what to do. She has no overseer or ruler, ruler to make sure she's doing what she's supposed to do. She works hard because her survival is dependent upon it, and no one will be there to bail her out if she doesn't. She is self-driven and self-motivated. God says, consider the ant and be like that at some point you must begin to do what you should not because people are watching and not because there's some threat that's hanging over your head but because it is the responsible and right thing to do consider the ant she has no one telling her what to do consider the ant number two she looks ahead and she lays in store for winter in the summer there's lots of food to be had There's much opportunity for pleasure, but the ant isn't sitting around and enjoying life. No, she's gathering. She's scurrying about. She is preparing for the long winter, listen, that she knows is coming. 
Can I help you understand something? Winter is always coming. Just when we thought, by the way, we were beyond it, it's back, right? But winter is always coming. There is always going to be periods, listen, of cold and difficulty. It's, it's, it's going to happen. And a lot of times what we want to do is we want to spend and spend and spend and have as much fun as we possibly can. And we lose sight of the fact, hold on a minute, winter is coming. And when it gets here, we are going to be unprepared if we continue down this path. So Solomon writes about the ant that they have an understanding, they have a, a sixth sense in some respects to understand, yeah, I know things are good now, but there's a day coming in which things are not gonna be so good and I'm gonna work and I'm gonna give it my all. I'm gonna exhaust myself to be prepared for times of cold and times in which there's no fruit available. And I'm gonna ask you this question, what are you doing right now to prepare for this winter season in your life? I'm not talking about literal winter season. I'm talking about a coming storm that will happen, no doubt, in all of our lives in which we'll wish maybe that we had been a little bit more proactive. We'll wish that we'd been a little bit more diligent when we had times that were good. I'm not a prophet. I'm not talking about that. I'm not, I'm not talking about doomsday preppers and all that sort of thing. If, you're, if that's you, great, fine. But I'm, I'm talking about the fact that, listen, in all of our lives, there are going to be days in which the dishwasher breaks. There's going to be days in which we get laid off from our job. And we have to wonder, how, where do I go from here? There are going to be days in which the car breaks down or there's some other calamity. The roof begins to leak. Uh, there, there's difficulty that is, is happening. And, and, and Solomon says, consider the ant. And understand that the ant, listen, is not made in the image of God. Cre- is a creation of God, no doubt. But he's not made like you're made and like I'm made. And yet, and there's something in that ant's understanding and in their instinct in which they are preparing constantly. And you've seen them running all over the place, carrying potato chips from your family picnic, you know, as fast as they can go. What are they doing? They're laying up in store for winter. So consider the ant. Then he says in verses 9 to 11, consider your habits. Verse number 9, he says, how long are you going to sleep? When are you going to get up? We're going to throw the covers off and get out of bed and start working. How long are you going to have your eyes closed? Sleep in every day. I, I, I used to be able to sleep in. <laughs> now sleeping in is, you know, 7, 7.30. I can remember the days as a teenager. We're going to some of these teenagers tonight, you know. I mean, it was nothing to sleep till 11, 11.30. Now I, I can't even imagine sleeping that long. But, but what he's saying is, how, how long are you going to lay in bed? Set the alarm. Get out of bed tomorrow morning and do something constructive with your life. Throw the covers off. Get out of your pajamas. Some of you are like, I've been in my pajamas for two years. I've been working from home. I get all of that. I get all of that. And I, that's, that's, that's completely fine. Some of you are hustling and you're working and you, you're always in your slippers. That's fine. But, 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 but you get the idea, right? Consider your habits. How long are you going to sit around? How long are you going to tolerate slothfulness and laziness in your life? Saying, go to work. Do something. Now listen, as we've already already indicated, there are plenty of people who are incapable of going to work. And And as I said a moment ago, I believe that we have an obligation in some way to try to meet their needs and to provide for them. I, I, I do believe that. 
I do believe that. But for those who are more than capable of going to work and getting a job and working hard, I, I, I'll just be honest with you. Again, I'm not here to condemn and I'm not here to make anybody feel uncomfortable, but I get off at 480 and 130th Street all the time. And there's people standing there. I don't know their situations. and I don't know why they're there. But I'm thinking to myself, I wonder if they could. Maybe they can't, and that's why they do what they do. But I wonder if they could. I, I just noticed recently, I think it was the city of Brook Park that passed an ordinance. There's a sign not far from there that says you're not allowed to solicit donations from people's vehicles. It's gotten so bad that cities are taking up and, and, and passing ordinances to keep that from happening. It says, consider your habits. Can, can you go to work? Can you get a job? Then do it. He says the, the indication here is that, is that for many, listen, the adjustments that you'd be, you need to make to your habits would probably be minor. He says a little sleep, a little sump lumber, a little folding of the hands. That's what he says in this text. But listen, those little adjustments will lead to major impact in your life and in your financial independence moving forward. And while the goal in life is never financial prosperity, neither is it financial poverty those who are careful about becoming surety for friends, foreigners, and even family, they'll, they'll be in a better position to avoid the pitfall of poverty. And you know this as well as I do, that those who refuse to tolerate slothfulness in their lives would determine every day I'm gonna get up and I'm gonna go to work and I'm gonna work hard and I'm gonna make something productive and profitable out of my life. Those also will avoid the pitfall of poverty. Solomon seems to indicate you wanna be poor? Nobody wants to be poor, but here's how you'll become poor. Sign on the dotted line for someone and agree to take on their indebtedness if they fail, and you'll become poor. And determine, you know, I don't want to go to work today. I want to stay in bed. I don't want to get up off of, my, off of my seat. I want to fold my hands and just sit here a little bit longer. And Solomon says, you, you mark it down. Your poverty will come upon you as one that traveleth, and your want as an armed man. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed.